0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast channel with me, Dr. Samantha Cotrera. On this podcast channel, you'll find a collection of my conference presentations from 2016 onward. To learn more information about this work, as well as all my work, visit my website at www.SamanthaGutrera.com. This paper is called Black Youth and the Culture of Resistance in a Canadian History Classroom. I presented this at the Youngsters Conference, which was a uh, child and youth studies conference that was held at Ryerson University in Toronto, Ontario in May 2019. While I have presented on uh, this topic before, specifically about Black youth in a Canadian history classroom and the resistance and rejection that I saw from these youth, this was my first time presenting to a youth and child studies crowd, and so I was really interested in how we could broaden some of these ideas based on the, the feedback from the other people that were there. It was really great to hear the other papers related to resistance and rejection from students in classrooms, and uh, it was a, a, a crowd of people, the Child and Youth Studies audience, that I'm interested in, in getting to know more. So I hope you enjoy this paper. Um First, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the sacred land on which Ryerson operates. Um, This has been a site of human activity for 15,000 years um, and uh, is the territory of the Huron-Wendat, the um, Petun First Nations, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. This territory was the subject of the Dish with the One Spoon Wanton Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Iroquois Confederacy and the Confederacy of the Ojibwe and Allied Nations to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. Today Toronto um, is still home to many of Indigenous people across Turtle Island and we are grateful to have this opportunity to work on this community and territory. As a white scholar and educator in Canada, I'm continuously understanding what it means to write, study, teach, and learn in these territories in ways that develop, support, and maintain reconciliatory relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples, such as myself. This acknowledgement is a way to keep these connections present in my work, even if my work is not focused directly on issues related to colonialism, settlement, and reconciliation. Interestingly, though, I have found since I began conference papers with this acknowledgement that I found it hard, if not impossible, to identify what topics are directly related to colonialism, settlement, and reconciliation, and which ones aren't. And this paper is no exception. So as I said, my uh, specialty is history education, Canadian history education in particular. And one of the things that sets my scholarship apart um, in, in that field is that I'm constantly questioning, and I have for 15 years now, who is, education, who is history education really for? Who ultimately benefits, grows, and strengthened by the narratives we hear, the skills we teach, and the voices we emphasize? I haven't found anyone taking up these questions in any substantial way and my answer and challenge is that history education really should be about the student. History education should really colour and develop students' sense of self and world in a way that affirms their place in the future. This is why and how we should be teaching Canadian history in schools and while People will not necessarily disagree with this idea that history education is supposed to be for the student. What that means in a diverse transnational country like Canada is not often discussed or debated. Um, I recently edited the capsule of uh, Jeunesse uh, in the past issue related to transnational youth cultures in Canada, and I'm really hoping that this notion of transnationality in Canada can continuously be picked up in both the child and youth studies communities as well as education. So this question of who history education is for has been, me, been with me since I started this work as an undergrad in 2004. And when I was continu- conducting my doctoral research in Canadian history classrooms in 2011, this question echoed through my head lesson after lesson, where I worked in four high school history classes at three different schools in a large metropolitan city somewhere in <laughs> southwestern Ontario on a design-based research project. Where I worked with teachers and students on intervening in traditional history practices with a student centric teaching method I've developed in 2004 since Historic Space, called Historic Space. While the dissertation focused on the general context for developing an an effective sorry, uh, an affective, meaningful history classroom space that spanned the theory across the four classrooms. In the last seven years, as I've done a lot more consulting work, as I've worked with thousands of Ontario teachers and students across Ontario, I've really focused a lot on one particular classroom, and that's the focus of my upcoming book, but also what I really bring when I come to consulting work. So this one teacher that I worked with, she was keen, engaged, and committed to an interactive, multicultural, and meaningful history uh, education for her students. She was pleased about the class assignment. It was a grade 10 history classroom because she saw it as a challenge from her principal to increase the success of a difficult group of students. That's her word. The school that she worked in was located in an urban working class neighborhood and a multicultural student population that had been identified as the, by the school board as having an at-risk population. The school had specialty programs like IB, um, but those students mixed with the general more low-income at-risk student population. The class of 30, 15 to 16-year-old students did not fit the model of a good student necessarily. They had low grades, lower literacy levels, they talked in class and didn't always pay attention. They were also predominantly black and brown students with strong family and cultural ties to the Caribbean. The teacher described this class as her crazy class um, uh, and identified that the students were very verbal. She often lamented that it was an academic, even though it was an academic class, we were working at an applied level, because the students did not have the abilities or interest in reading or engaging in deep academic work. The teacher insinuated that the, her principal assigned her these students in one class so she could use her active teaching techniques to increase the student's, student' students' uh, chance for success. With a class of mainly black and brown students, teenagers, again this teacher saw this teaching assignment as an exciting opportunity to empower her students, it's her word, uh, with different stories about Canadian history. The first time I met her, she told me how during the first week of school in September, her students asked her if they were going to study black history in February. Well, we're going to study it all year. She happily told me that she responded. However, the unique synergy of a class full of multiracial students and a research intervention designed to challenge traditional understandings of Canadian history created an environment in which she, as a white teacher, with a commitment to anti-racist multiculturalism, still expose a discursive and pedagogical through line privileged whiteness as a way to define legitimacy in the Canadian nation. For example, she spoke a lot about wanting her black students to connect with their grassroots by demonstrating local history and how the local history has changed over uh, the local community has changed over time. Specifically, she wanted to demonstrate how this neighborhood that was predominantly black wasn't always a black community. So, she held up a panoramic photograph of young men standing in uniform outside the school in the 1940s. Because the teacher wanted to highlight the history of discrimination that marks popular history of black Canadians' uh, contributions to World War II, she asked the students to look at the picture and identify who was unable to go to war. Two black students snickered, uh, two black students in this ethnically diverse class snickered and answered black people under their breath. We couldn't do anything, another black student commented. The teacher did not respond to the comments or explain why she asked the question. She just moved on and asked the class to identify the background of people in the picture. One of the students said, white people, with her friend responding, that one was easy. In these comments, students acknowledged that they already knew, and this was something that came up in my interviews with students, that black people had less rights and privileges than white people. They didn't need another lesson on it. The quickness of their answers, though, suggests their eagerness for lessons and hopes that they will learn histories that will tell them something more, something else, something more complicated than what they already know. Following this, this teacher took the students down to the front of the school to look at photographs of the uh, alumni who were veterans. She asked students to look at the last names of the soldiers and guess what their backgrounds were. She pointed to one soldier and emphasized that he was the only black soldier amongst the dozens of white soldiers on the wall. Rather than acknowledge the details of his service, his accomplishments uh, following his service or any details about his life or his community, the teacher used this teaching moment to emphasize how he was the only one there, making his presence the embodiment of absence. While this was supposed to be a moment of connections for students, by highlighting the absence of people who shared ethnic or cultural similarities, this moment lacked the complexity needed for the students to be meaningful. Students knew the absences already. It was easy to say they weren't there or only there on the margins. They wanted to know the stories that were less easy, the counter stories that challenged who they could be in this place the stories that brought them together to be Canadians that didn't look like Canadians in their textbook or the pictures hanging on the wall. When we returned to class, the teacher tried to bring the learning back to World War II, but the students had again tuned out, and there was a constant buzz of toxing and texting, which was pretty standard for that class. However, at some point, one student interrupted the teacher um, and asked where the name Toronto came from. I saw both the question and the answer as sort of performative because I was in the room, so it may not have happened if I wasn't there. Um, But the teacher did stop her lesson to talk about the origins of the name Toronto and Canada. And never in my whole time with the students have I heard the class so quiet or respectful. While this was one of my first days, I was with them for another two months, and this was such a standout moment. All their students turned their attention to her and listened to this history lesson that actually resounded with their lives. Did the students have a connection to World War II? No, not directly. Not when you're talking about white male soldiers in Canada and Britain and the active absence of um, people that look like them in the lesson. But did they have a connection to the name of the city and country they called home? Yes, they did. And they demonstrated that this was something that they cared about, that reflected who they were, the multiplicities of who they were. This isn't who they were, but. um, By showing respect to the content through their behavior and their questions during this brief interlude in the lesson. During this same pause, students asked questions about the first interracial couple in Canada. And they also talked through the definition of war as understood through gang violence that they had felt in their own community while there were certainly elements of procrastination in these questions it was one of the most engaged and respectful times I had ever witnessed in this class and as soon as the teacher moved back to World War II the class's behavior returned to normal talking texting and listening to music After class, the teacher apologized for this and said that the students could really go off topic with their questions and again, it was a crazy class. But for me, it was the most genuine moment of teaching and learning between this teacher and her students. Because it was March when I had gotten into the classroom and the students were still asking for black history. The students asked for black history as soon as I stepped into the classroom. So while the teacher boasted on multiple occasions that she responded to the student's request about black history in February, when they began in September, the fact was it was still March and black history was not taught in a way that the students felt satiated by. In fact, other than the days we brought in lessons specifically related to people of color in Canada with the research uh, intervention, students asked for more black history every single day. Through their words, actions, and reactions, over and over, I saw how black, these Black Canadian youth courted and cultivated a culture of resistance within this class that stated, implicitly or explicitly, that what they were learning wasn't relevant, interesting, or respectful to their lives. Well, students acted out in ways that their teachers interpreted as students' unwillingness or inability to learn, appreciate, or be a part of Canadian history, what they actually wanted was more. More attention, more content, more complexity to the content. They wanted more Canadian he- history teaching, not less. They wanted Canadian history teaching that reflected who and what they were in Canada, not who and what Canada was to the teacher. Nautis found that when students actively rejected instruction, quote, their rejection comes in the extreme form, such as dropping out, they can also be seen as their eyes glued to the cell phones, to stepping in and out of class, to in-class disruptions, or to simple glazed over eyes as a student, quote, checks out, end quote. These familiar behaviors, especially in a grade 10 history class, are often ones that teachers identify as students hating history when really they are looking for an uh, opportunity to be brought into the lesson, to be connected in an engagement with a complicated past. Thus, students engaged in in acts of resistance, being, oops, being too verbal, being crazy, not reading, not writing, being difficult, all words that the teacher used to describe this class by engaging in acts of resistance, it was a way to continuously upset what was happening in the classroom as being legitimate Canadian history. Eric Toshes draws on Foucault to define resistance as the, productive and u- the production and use of power as an uh, investation and e- expression of an individual or group's struggle to be an agent. In the article, The White Gaze and the Black Soul, Lemmy argues that for him, when he was a black teen in a predominantly white school, his, quote, blackness was synonymous with being a dysfunctional learner and to being predisposed to criminality, social, and moral disorderedness through the school system, end quote. And that for him, the act of political resistance through hip hop helped him navigate these expectations. In the class I worked in, students were engaged in active resistance by expressing their agency as learners, but also, I argue, by making present the absence the teacher emphasized. If the teacher was teaching black history as the embodiment of absence, the students being verbal, the students being crazy, the students being different, uh, difficult was the embodiment of the presence that they were missing. It was this nexus between the read of their behaviours and their behaviours itself, their desires itself where the resistance became a productive culture of resistance. Through these, quote, disrespectful behaviours of resistance, students demanded acknowledgement of the presence of the other by acting out in ways that teachers cannot help but acknowledge. It is through misbehavior and willful disengagement, their culture of resistance that they've cultivated in this class, that many black students actively negotiate their place and space in the narratives of the nation in formal Canadian history classrooms. Thank you. This desire for agency resulted in a classroom environment that wasn't easy for the teacher, even though her questions about exclusion were easy for the students. However, in rejecting a national narrative that excludes them, and this is where hopefully we can do some cross about refusal, because I thought that was really interesting. In rejecting a national narrative that excludes them, black students practice the skills of, quote, spiritual salvation that maintains hold of histories that includes, accepts, and embrace them. And this is from Delgado, Cole, and um, Valenzuela. To refer back to the title of Elimni's article, quote, The White Gaze and the Black Soul, end quote, I found that the students were reclaiming their black souls from the white gaze through the act of disruption of what was able to take place in the classroom. I don't claim that this was entirely intentional or conscious on the behalf of the the students, but rather part of what Yasso calls resistance capital the knowledge and skills fostered through oppositional behavior that challenges inequality students knew their behavior in the lesson knew that through their behaviors the lessons would be stopped they could not be continued in being stopped they were able to maintain agency and integrity of the histories that were being disavowed by the fact that they weren't being acknowledged Thus, by rejecting national history, we can understand the actions of some of these black students as playing the role that the nation has assigned for them, outsiders in a cohesively narrated white world. This role may not result in high-scoring achievements, but this role honors the histories of their ancestors whose stories are silenced. They make their presence known in the present, even if it wasn't being necessarily respectful of the past that was being taught. They literally and figuratively interrupted the narrative to remind educators that they were there. And so I end this paper with a poem by black American poet Morgan Parker, um, which I'll read in a second, uh, and an interest in foregrounding this desire for making the classroom space a productive space to rethink what narratives can and should and already are being taught through the the politics of resistance in the classroom. This poem I came across on Monday, and I was like, yes, this. (laughs) So I'll leave that up for you. Thank you so much.